You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. We're studying the book of Jonah, and I'd like to suggest that there's a tendency to read Jonah as though it were just a strange boating accident, <laughs> which is... Um, and yet, it's, there's, there's so much more there, and I want to encourage you to think a little bit harder than you may have thought about the book of Jonah. I believe that God has placed this book in the canon to be Israel's own critique of its own tendency towards ethnocentricity. We all have this tendency. God calls Jonah to confront his ethnic prejudice and to confront the divisions of his day. Go to Nineveh, an Israelite going to the Assyrians. Now, this is relevant to life today in America. I don't know what could be more relevant than this, but the fact is, it remains hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about ethnicity, in particular ethnic differences. I myself very much relate to Jonah. I feel, therefore, like a, a, a reluctant prophet, and maybe you do as well. The struggle to find the words that we would say to one another to try to bring reconciliation. What I'd like you to notice initially is that God changes the tone of the conversation. He engages the conversation from the perspective of good news. Good news. Now, I think Jonah probably would have had no problem carrying a message of bad news to the Ninevites. They were Israel's enemies. He probably would have loved to have gone and said, you guys are in deep trouble. God's angry at you. Uh, repent or die. This whole place is going to burn. He probably would have taken that message. But we learn in chapter 4, Jonah understood God was commissioning him out of his mercy, out of God's deep loving kindness. Jonah was sent with good news. And this is what was so uncomfortable to him. But it is what is so inviting to me. Today, when people talk about racism, there's often so much finger-wagging and shaming uh, and heaping up guilt upon guilt, thinking so in some ways that if people just feel guilty enough, maybe they'll stop doing what they're doing to each other. And yet I was so glad that Pastor Solomon last week read to us from Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul says, don't you know that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? God's kindness changes lives. And so if in any way this Lent, you want to change in your life, you're looking to do things differently or to repent, I encourage you to throw yourself not on your sense of guilt or shame, what you've done wrong, but on God's grace, what, how he embraces you in the grace of Jesus Christ. But before Jonah can announce good news, he has to first experience good news, and that's what the fish is all about. That's what I want to argue today, that the great fish is, for Jonah, a firsthand, life-changing experience of grace. God in the fish moves the gospel to the center of this book of Jonah, moves the gospel to the center of Jonah's life, moves the gospel to the center of the social dynamics around race. So with that in mind, let's open up our Bibles and look at the second chapter in the book of Jonah on page 752. Please turn the Bible there, grab the black book and the rack in front of you. I'd love you to follow along. This is a psalm. Uh, it's one of the most beautiful psalms in the whole Bible. Interesting. It's not in the Psalter. It's in the book of Jonah. Psalm of Thanksgiving. Uh, in this chapter, uh, God's Word addresses itself primarily to the internal dynamics of race. Next week, we'll be looking at the social dynamics of race 
the external dynamics when we look at chapter 3. But today, would you just listen as I read Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And when I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're hearing God's holy word. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just heard never will. Well, a friend of mine rented a car. It was a Lexus RX 350. Really nice car. He was driving in the Boston area uh, with his niece, realized he wanted to do a quick errand, and so he pulled off uh, into a Walmart, pulled into the parking lot. Now, it was a very wintry day. It was snowing quite hard, and uh, he didn't want his niece to have to wait a long time or get cold. So rather than actually park and turn off the car, he just pulled opposite the entrance of the Walmart, left the motor running, and uh, bundled up and ran into the uh, store. Ran a couple of errands there, you know, purchased some things. He came out a couple minutes later, still, of course, snowing very hard, looked out, saw the Lexus, bundled himself again, and ran across the uh, driveway there and jumped into the car. Surprised to hear that at that moment, there was someone screaming in the car. There was a man. He looked over. There was a man in the car in the passenger seat yelling at the top of his lungs. This was terrifying to my friend, who started yelling as well. The man across the street was, uh, seat was white. My friend was black. And they're looking at each other going, what are you doing in my car? What are you doing in my car? And then my friend looked down and he saw the GPS unit was a little bit different than the one uh, in the car. He realized, oh my gosh, I got into the wrong Lexus RX 350. Apparently there were two cars idling right outside of Walmart that were otherwise identical. Now, it, it was a terrifying moment for both of these guys who just had no idea what was going on. Uh, funny now, but they couldn't find the humor uh, in the moment. And I want to just pause for a moment because I think there's a little bit of a par- parable there for us around race 
in America today. Let's get inside of their imaginations and think whether they're conscious of these thoughts or not, what sort of things might have passed through their heads as they sat there in this very uncomfortable moment. It may be that the white man in the passenger seat was looking over and seeing this African-American jump in and thinking, oh my gosh, black men are dangerous. I mean, he had this, this preset bias in his head. We don't know. Maybe that the black man, as he got into the car and looked over at this white person, thought, oh no, I'm in big trouble because I'm innocent, but the white man doesn't know that. This is going to escalate into a situation that could be very dangerous for me. And maybe that the white man in the passenger seat looks over at the black man and says to himself, I feel guilty. I think he's trying to steal something from me because I have wealth that he lacks. And I'm uncomfortable with that reality, but it is the truth. And maybe that the black man looks over at the white man and says, I feel a sense of shame. I can see in his eyes a kind of a fear that just makes no sense to me. And it's like I have no value. Now, I don't really know. None of us knows what was going through their minds, consciously or subconsciously. But at the bottom of it all, it's really clear, it was fear. The dynamic at that moment was driven by mutual fear. They ought to have been able to laugh about it. They would have loved to have been able to sort it out. There are two Lexuses there. This is an easy problem to solve. But what gets in the way is their imagination. It's so limited. There's no space in that car for the two of them. There's no space in that car for trust or for what they would need to build trust. Willie James Jennings is a theologian who writes, Christianity in the Western world lives and moves within a diseased social imagination. Jennings is an African-American faculty at Yale, and he's a graduate of Fuller Seminary. And he says that we have a diseased social imagination. I think that's interesting. He argues that the black imagination is diseased. He writes, like Jesus, these peoples of distant lands are brought to a place where a crucifying identity, a slave identity, will be forever fastened like a cross to their bodies. Also, Jennings argues that the white imagination is diseased. He says, it is as though Christianity, wherever it went in the modern colonies, inverted its sense of hospitality. It claimed to be the host, the owner of the spaces it entered, and demanded native peoples enter its cultural logics, its ways of being in the world, and its conceptualities. A diseased imagination. I think that the great fish of Jonah 2 is there to repair, to heal, to provoke, and to restore Jonah's imagination, and perhaps ours as well. You have to use your imagination when you come to this story. I mean, a great fish. This is remarkable, right? It strains credulity. And yet, don't you wish like God could have chosen something more plausible to rescue Jonah? Something a submarine would have been, you know, even in, in the ancient world, somehow it seemed like we could understand that. But no, God chose something that would be deliberately hard for us to get our heads around because he wants our heads to be bigger. He wants our minds to expand. God did it, and he did it with a great fish. That makes my imagination fire on all cylinders. And so I want to engage your imagination today as well. Let's just imagine for a moment 
Who might be in that fish beside Jonah? When we think about Jonah's mental space, yeah, he's literally alone, but he, I think he carries into that fish through his imagination other people. I think he's slammed into that fish in the same way that my friend was slammed into the Lexus and found himself face to face with another. Who else is there for Jonah? Well, I would suggest to you that there is a Ninevite inside that whale and that there is also a Phoenician inside that great fish with Jonah. Uh, why the Ninevite? Well, the Ninevites, they're Assyrians. Jonah, I believe, has come to believe that the Assyrian is superior to him. Remember, the Assyrians are the overlords uh, of the uh, Israelites at that time. The Assyrians have come, they've killed 10,000 Israelites, they've come to rule, they're exacting tribute from Israel and all of its neighbors. They have asserted superiority militarily, ethnically, culturally, and Jonah on some level may very well have incorporated that into the, his own way of seeing himself and the world. He might have taken that in to the great fish with him. He may also have taken in with him a Phoenician, why? Because the sailors on the deck of the ship were undoubtedly Phoenicians. And he may have come to believe that the Phoenicians were not superior to him, but actually inferior to him, theologically, culturally, ethnically. We see that actually in chapter one, where all of the sailors, these pagan sailors, I think they're Phoenicians, are scrambling hard to save everybody in the midst of this storm. What's Jonah doing? He's down below, sleeping. They find Jonah and they ask him a string of questions. What's going on here? Why are you here? What are you doing? Who are you? Jonah goes right to the ethnic. The only question he answers is, he's, I am a Hebrew. I want you to know my ethnicity. He's looking down his nose at them. I don't need to worry. He says, I worship the God who made earth and sea. You know. Now, this is a, a claim to superiority that very skillfully, I believe the narrator is undermining because he shows us this juxtaposition of Jonah who's sleeping. The sailors, meanwhile, show all the marks of Israelite piety. Did you notice that in chapter one? They pray, they call out to the Lord, and they use the covenant name of God, they offer sacrifices, they have ethical concern for human life. They don't want to throw Jonah overboard, and yet Jonah sleeps. He says he's a Hebrew, but they actually manifest Hebrew piety. This is telling us that these, these cultural, ethnic, religious, and social dynamics are at work in Jonah's mind when he finds himself inside of the fish. Fear has infected Jonah's imagination. Fear of losing freedom, as he has with the Assyrians. Fear, perhaps, of losing dignity, as he thinks he might, if he didn't command the respect of these Phoenician sailors. What does God do for his fear? Well, we read in verse 17 of chapter 1, he appoints, or he provided, a fish. A great fish. I want to suggest to you, the fish is not a sign of judgment to Jonah. It's actually a sign of good news. It's a work of grace. That's why the psalm he sings is a psalm of thanksgiving. And if you want to know the meaning of the psalm, read all the way down to its bottom where it concludes with this wonderful exclamation, deliverance belongs to the Lord. That's the good news according to Jonah. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. 
That's true for us and all of our fears as well. He is our Redeemer. Realizing that for Jonah is the difference between chapter 1 and his not willing to go to Nineveh and chapter 3 when he will go to Nineveh. He's got a lot of growth to do in his heart, but notice his imagination is starting to heal. And I think the message of this to Jonah and to Israel and ultimately to us from the Lord is this. This is the big idea. God's saying to us, if you trust me, I will give you what you need to rebuild trust with others. If you trust me, I will give you what you need to rebuild trust with others. How? Well, I want to just look briefly with you at this psalm and notice two things. I call this the seamanship of deliverance. Uh, these are both nautical observations. The first has to do with the waves, and the second has to do with an anchor. Waves go up and down, and so does Jonah in this psalm. Did you notice that? That the first half he's going down, and the second half he's coming up. See that? First half he's going down to the seafloor. This is a very graphic description of drowning. Uh, first he's there on the surface, he sees the waves, and then they pass over him, and then he goes down, 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 down. Not only down to the seafloor, but down to death, the pit is uh, the grave. He's going down to death. The bars are going to hold him in there forever are the bars of death. Not even down to death. He's going down into judgment. He's going to hell. And the uh, King James Version translates verse 2, out of the belly of hell I cried and you heard my voice. That's provocative. Out of the belly of hell I cried and you heard my voice. So he's going down. He's going down because he knows he has run away from God. He has abandoned God, and he assumes, therefore, God has abandoned him, right? Could my prayer ever be heard in your temple now? He's run from God's presence. And here's the surprise. The answer is yes. And he comes back up. Verse 6b, yet you, but you. Here comes the grace. You brought up my life from the pit. He's taken from the sea floor to the sea surface. He's taken from death to life. He's taken from hell to heaven. This is the conversion of Jonah right here. He is being reconciled to God. The second uh, uh, seamanship here that we see is an anchor. It's not mentioned, but it's implied. Notice that three times he worries about or thinks about or alludes to the temple. Initially, he worries, could the t my prayer ever reach the temple? Here I am in the Mediterranean. Who gets reception this far away from the temple, you know? Uh, and, and then he realizes, my prayer has heard, been heard in the temple because he's been raised up. And then at the end, we get this picture of him joining God's family at the temple, actually offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, why the temple? Because the temple is a place of reconciliation with God. Because this is the symbol for Israel of God's grace. You bring a sacrificial offering, and God would accept that offering. You don't change your life necessarily. That's not a precondition for this reconciliation. You come as a sinner, but God declares you righteous. He, he imposes your guilt on the sacrificial offering, and you walk away holy and beloved, complete in God. And so this, is, uh, this fish is a sign of reconciliation with God. It's an experience of grace for Jonah that will allow him to proclaim good news with authenticity because he has experienced it firsthand. That's why the Jews will read this book, Jonah, on Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement, a great day of reconciliation for Israel. 
This is why Christians read Jonah in light of the, the cross. Think of uh, how Jonah points us to Jesus. Remember what he says on the deck? He says, I know I'm the problem. Throw me in and you will be saved. In the same way, the story of Jesus is a story of the death of one so that all may be saved. And so we're drawn to the cross of Jesus Christ. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Let's just think for a moment about our response to the cross, your personal response to the cross. It's worth pausing today to understand, has God delivered me? Do I trust him for that same salvation from crisis, as Jonah experienced it, from death, even from hell itself? The cross is God's assurance. It's God's fish for you and for me. Consider your response to that work of grace because it precedes any attempts at reconciliation to which you and I might be called. Reconciliation with God opens the way for reconciliation with people. Remember, I, I'm telling you the big idea today is that God's saying to us, if you trust me, I will give you what you need to build trust with others. If we ask ourselves how, it's to move the gospel to the center of our lives, as God does for Jonah as well. Let's think about the seamanship of deliverance and these two elements and how they might begin to change the conversation that we have with people across lines of ethnicity and different cultures. Let's think about the waves and think about the anchor. What do Jonah's waves tell me about inferiority or superiority? Well, if we trust God for deliverance, then what we know is we stand at the foot of the cross and at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. We're equal. We have to be equal. The cross, like the waves, pull us down. We realize that we're all equally sinful before God. Jonah goes down. This dissolves any of his pretenses to be superior to anybody else. I deserve to go to Sheol. So this is kind of a radical humility that we encounter at the cross, and it's good for us. At the same time, God doesn't leave us there, and he doesn't leave Jonah there, right? Up you go. God says, I will ennoble you. I, my son's death for you shows you the infinite worth of your life. So there's an infinite nobility associated with all of us at the foot of the cross there. And that's part of the beauty and part of the mystery. But we're all equal there. This starts to change the dynamics of race. There's a kind of a fluid dynamics to, to race. Uh, if you think of it, Jonah's experience of race, uh, to be made to think he's inferior with the Assyrians, leads him to perhaps try to assert his superiority over the Phoenicians. Think of it nautically. You might say one way that you can pop up your end of the boat is by sitting on the people on their end of the boat. And if you're feeling pushed down, you can elevate yourself by pushing down on others. And that teeters back and forth. This is a new way. The cross is a new way of rebalancing so that we're all equal. It's at the cross that we hear God's no to our false claims of superiority, no to our stereotypes of other people, no to our exclusive claim to hold land, no to our sense that color of any kind ought to def define what is normal or good. 
And it's at the cross that God says to us, yes, yes, you belong, you matter, you have infinite worth. Yes, my son has given his life for you. So the waves, the up and down, are evened out at the foot of the cross. The second question, what does the anchor tell me about insecurity? For surely insecurity is a part of the story of our ethnic divisions. Well, I think here we see if God, if we trust God for deliverance, then we are anchored and we're anchored to the cross. And those who are anchored as securely as those who are anchored to the cross will have the capacity to take great risks, to range far and wide into all kinds of waters. See, reconciliation takes vulnerability, and vulnerability takes courage, and courage is the willingness to pay a price for your love. Think of the price that God has paid in his son, Jesus Christ, to love us, to embrace us. Those who know and love that story will reproduce it in their lives, being vulnerable because they're already secure and making space for others. No matter where I go, my ethnicity is not the center of my identity anymore. Jesus is. And Jesus and his cross make me secure. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. So before I go, you might ask me the question, well, how would all this change the conversation in a Lexus RX 350? And the answer is, I don't really know. Probably not very much initially. If somebody else jumps into your car, probably the best thing you do is scream and get out as quickly as possible. If you get into somebody else's car, same advice. Scream and get out as quickly as possible. You got something out of church today, didn't you? But if you will feed your imagination for a moment this morning with the good news of Jesus Christ, I wonder if you could think of other possibilities. Let me just think for a minute. Couldn't you imagine the white man, for example, in this very tense moment, looking over at the black man and saying, even though he knows this is his car, brother, have I made a mistake here? Is it possible that this is your space? You could also equally imagine the black man in that car looking over at the white man, even though he knows this is his car, saying, brother, can I help you get somewhere? It seems that you need a ride. Well, I, I don't expect to end up in a Lexus anytime soon. I'm more of a bike guy. But maybe you'll get in a Lexus as you drive home today. And it doesn't matter. The opportunity here is not in the car. The opportunity is in the other person. And I have a sense that very soon you will find yourself close up to somebody who's different from you in many wonderful ways. Maybe it'll be at school or class. Maybe it'll be an office space. Maybe a person next to you on the bus. What will you do? Well, look at that person, be they black or white, be they Inuit or Brazilian, Chinese or Phrygian, and see them as a family member, a sister or a brother, and let your imagination go wild. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the beauty of this story. You keep telling it through the scripture in so many different ways. Now tell it through our lives. We worship you, Jesus, you who, though you had the form of God, did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied yourself. Down like Jonah you went, you took the form of a servant, even the form of death on a cross. So that 
the Father might lift you up. And at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So may we join you in going down that we might grab a hold of those who are different with the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit and raise them up with us as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.